Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Hover and Eero and Burrow. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> I'm Samantha Rochefort, a video producer at Polygon.com, and I'm here today with Christina Warren, Senior Cloud Developer Advocate at Microsoft, and Brianna Wu, Democratic Candidate for Congress. U.S. Congress, not State Congress, United States Congress. United States. That's right. The big one. The best country on earth, sort of. <laughs> Maybe not right now, but... <laughs> well, I think you have to commit to that because you are going to be running it. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's the best country on earth, and I'm just not going to think about that anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we have a very, very exciting show. We're going to be briefly talking about the big news of Angela Aaron's being out at Apple, uh, as well as an SS7 vulnerability because we love our stories of hacking. But first, before we get into all of that, we're going to have a very special interview segment, which I'm going to let Christina introduce. Take it away. This podcast, Rocket, recently celebrated its fourth anniversary. And one of the stories we've covered for almost the entire length of this show is the fall of Theranos and its CEO and founder, Elizabeth Holmes. So for those of you that might be new to the show and the topic, the TLDR is that Theranos was a well-funded medical startup based in Silicon Valley that claimed to have the technology to run a battery of blood tests um, on just a couple of drops of blood. And it was led by a Stanford dropout with a Steve Jobs' obsession, her name is Elizabeth Holmes, and Theranos raised over $700 million from a bunch of well-heeled investors and at its peak had a valuation of more than $9 billion. And then in 2015, reporting from the Wall Street Journal raised questions about the company's technology. And you can guess what happened next. So fast forward a couple of years and Elizabeth Holmes has been indicted on wire fraud charges. She settled uh, charges from the SEC and Theranos is out of business. Rebecca Jarvis is the chief business, economics, and technology correspondent for ABC News, and she's also the host and one of the executive producers behind a new podcast and documentary about the Theranos saga called The Dropout. Rebecca joins us now to talk about the podcast, Holmes, and Theranos. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You guys have done a terrific job covering this story over the years, so I'm really excited to be with you talking about it today. So... Did you, had you interviewed Elizabeth Holmes um, before the John Kerry-Rue's 2015 reporting? Were you, how familiar were you with Theranos, I guess, before the, you know, the fall aspect of the story started? So it's really interesting. The way I first learned about this story was actually late 2013, early 2014. I was doing a story, um, an investigation inside of ABC News with Diane Sawyer at the time, looking at the costs of healthcare and the rising costs of medicine and the, the fact that medical care tends to be the number one reason people file for personal bankruptcy. They can't keep up with their medical bills. And we were looking for solutions. And at the time, Theranos was pitched to me as the solution, the antidote. They were pitching me on these tests. They said that they were half the cost of typical tests. And what sort of made me question everything at the time is that I couldn't find anybody independent outside of Theranos to tell me that 
this was going on, that, that this was legit, that this was something that people could and should use. So I looked at it with some interest at that time. And then all of a sudden, Elizabeth Holmes starts showing up everywhere at that point on every single TV show. She was on all of these, um, you know, she was on all of the newspapers. She was on the cover of all of these magazines. She was on the speaker circuit. You probably were at conferences where she spoke. Yep. Here's the thing. I kept saying, I want to have a conversation with her, but I really want to talk to her about the technology and how the technology works, because that was our interest at the time to, to help people understand medical bills. And they never wanted to have that conversation. So I had not spoken to her, but I had been watching this and following it from the sidelines when John Kerry's reporting starts happening in the Wall Street Journal. And we had been efforting on our own side, trying to get a conversation with her um, to no avail. And so when his reporting came out, I thought, Hmm, this is this is really interesting. This continues to be something that is worth pursuing. And that's when we started talking to more and more people from various angles of the story, people like the patients who are getting misinformation from their tests that were done inside of Walgreens, um, some of the investors who had put money in who were, you know, average investors as well. There's there's yeah. a woman in my podcast, her name is Eileen, and she put $150,000 into Theranos. This was the biggest investment of her life. She's a retiree. And while we hear a lot about the big investors, the Rupert Murdoch's and the DeVos family, um, the Walmart family, when we hear a lot about them, sure, that was a very prevalent part of this story. But there were also people like the smaller time investors and, of course, the patients who really came in contact with this, uh, their, their uh, technology and got bad information as a result. It concerned me when I first heard about your podcast was, are we going to just be retreading John Carreyou's book? I've read it several times. And what really impressed me is the amount of original reporting in The Dropout. Your first episode, you go to Stanford and you talk to professors that were really worried about uh, like her taking one class and deciding she knows it all and is going to start a microfluidics company. What was the process of kind of going out and doing that original reporting? So. We we cast a wide net to begin with, um, just going out and looking for people who had either spoken about Theranos or were tangentially related to Theranos. And it was initially, because we started this process so many years ago now, it was initially with the idea that eventually we wanted to do this as a podcast, but we never really, even at that point, had sign off or someone saying, yes, this is going to air at this date. So we just started looking for interesting people with interesting stories to tell. Phyllis Gardner, who is definitely a part of John Kerry's reporting, but also was a part of our reporting, um, is somebody that we spoke to um, early on about her impression of this young woman when Elizabeth Holmes first came to meet with her. And um, we started talking to her. We started reaching out to a number of former Apple employees because, of course, Apple employees were some of the first people that Elizabeth Holmes wanted on her team. And, you know, one of the things about this story, um, and, and I'm sure this sort of has, has been striking to you as well, what's striking to me is how long this company managed to 
last yeah. with all of the problems. And the fact that these problems, they, they came up time and time again. I mean, they would literally, all the people would leave. All these Apple employees initially left. They all quit. Um, Avi Tavani and Steve mm-hmm. Jobs' right-hand man left the board. And then you had Anna Ariola, the uh, chief uh, content mm-hmm. officer, who left as well. You have... Um, you you had a number of other employees who were on Ariola, by the way, was one of the designers of the iPhone. She created that whole customer experience with the iPhone. And she was one of the early employees who looked at Elizabeth Holmes initially with um, great admiration. And then over time, just the whole thing fell apart. She completely lost trust in Elizabeth. So you had this wave in the early years, 2006 to 2008, where all of these Apple employees came and went. The company was running out of money. That's when Sonny Belwani came on board with his bailout loan, essentially for her at the height of the Great Recession. And then it had its whole renaissance, but then almost ran out of money all over again, which I guess for people listening who have started companies that, you know, is is typical when you, you start a company. There are definitely those highs and lows as far as money is concerned. But the number of red flags that yeah. were being raised over and over yeah. again is, is wild. Well, and it was so interesting, too, because, as you said, like, they almost, I mean, the, the staff turnover is kind of unreal. But what's equally unreal was that even though, you know, they didn't get the David Boyces of the world and some of the, the really well-heeled people until um, later on, the these stories didn't come out. You have Avi Devanian leave. You have these Apple people leave. But yet it's almost like the typical whisper network that happens with companies like didn't exist. It's like people just didn't talk about their experiences. Did you get a sense from talking to some of the former employees if it was like out of a, maybe a sense of embarrassment or a sense of loyalty or maybe something else of why, you know, these they see these red flags, they see this happen, they leave. But then, you know, the company continues to kind of, rebuild itself and and um, renew itself and recruit new people. And it seems like the, I guess, what we would sometimes expect would be people kind of talking to one another didn't happen. It seems like they just continued to be able to find new people to, to suck into the story. Yeah. I mean, what's what's crazy is so there's a number of Apple employees, like I mentioned, Avi and Anna, but Justin Maxwell, Mike Bowerly, Adam Vollmer, they were also former Apple employees who came on board and they left the company basically thinking it was going under, that it was only a matter of time. They weren't embarrassed about it. They just it was one of those things like we left Apple to give this a shot. And it didn't quite work out. And we're all moving on with our lives. And what was crazy to them is this was like, you know, in the late 2000, uh, you know, 2006 to 2008 to 2009 span of time. Fast forward to 2014 when Elizabeth is blowing up and there's Mm -hmm. all this publicity and she's a star. At this point, they are all now being approached by friends who are like, hey, didn't you work at that company Theranos at one point? Can you put me in touch? I want to get a job at this hot startup. (laughs) And they're literally sitting there thinking, I thought this company was going out of business when I left. And here I am seeing the news and I still have a bad taste in my mouth about the whole thing. 
But I also feel like, huh, did, was I wrong? Did they do a 180? Did something totally change? And even Avi Tavanian was, you know, asking himself that question. But what's interesting to me, and this even comes up with one of the people who, um, Kevin Hunter, who was a consultant for Walgreens, who looked at the deal for Walgreens and and got a bad taste in his mouth from his interactions with Theranos, he too was in this moment where when all the publicity started, his wife turned to him and said, maybe you were wrong about this one because he was skeptical. (gasps) And he said, no, I just have a gut feeling that I'm not wrong about this one. And she kept saying to him, you know what? You might have been wrong, hon. And, (laughs) you know, it turns out he wasn't. So this is a a wider question. But for me, listening to the dropout, part of what makes it so uneasy for me to listen to is how familiar all of it is. Like you're you're in Silicon Valley. I used to live out there. I've gone through three startup phases and all of these tendencies, like it's it's so familiar to me. And I think one of the biggest things we have to think about with Theranos is, you know, it's okay to kind of not have the product together if it's a an app on your phone. If you're talking about healthcare, it's a completely different story. So this is a really wide question, but do you think Silicon Valley has learned from lessons here? Do you think there do you think it's possible this could happen again? Do we need to look at you know, is there a role for venture capitalists to play? Is there a regulatory role to play? Like, how how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Because Elizabeth Holmes, there's reporting out there of her already talking about, like, raising money and doing a new startup, which is very troubling. Yeah, well, and I had a conversation just yesterday with somebody um, who told me that there were conversations that he'd had with Elizabeth that they were literally talking about, hey, like, what if we buy some of the old Theranos equipment and like start a new oh, God. Theranos 2.0? <sighs> so, yeah. So, and, and there's the, the, there will be more in the dropout coming soon about what her next step will be. But, um, so this is a conversation that I've had with a number of people. Avi was one of the people. Um, Kara Swisher at Recode is one of the people. And, you know, there's, there's part of that Silicon Valley ethos, like you said, it's that fake it till you make it ethos. And the the issue that we fall into here is that an iPhone is very different from a medical device. And we accept as consumers if our consumer device works 95% of the time. But if that happens to be a medical device, no one wants to walk into a doctor's office or a Walgreens or whatever it is and think, well, maybe I'm the 5% of the time this thing isn't getting it right. And by the way, mm-hmm. 5% of the time not getting it right is actually a pretty liberal, um, it's, if, if, if Theranos devices were not getting it right 5% of the time, that would actually be better than <laughs> what it appears was happening right. along the way. And, and also, if 5% of the time was your accuracy in a medical capacity, that would be unacceptable. I mean, if, exactly. if, 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 if any of the, of the incumbent blood testing labs said, oh, well, we're going to have a 5% error rate, Quest would be out of business. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <sighs> So, so then the question is, whose role is it and, and what is the outcome here? And I have, I have a bunch of different feelings on this topic and a thoughts on this topic. One, first of all, we want innovation in medicine. We want people to feel like they can innovate and invent and create less expensive models for consumers, better models for consumers, all of those things, in my opinion, should be rallied behind. But we also want 
skepticism on the part of investors and on the part of boards of directors, those who have some oversight. We also want to make sure that if you're creating a medical device, that the the various, whether it's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Services or it's the FDA, or it's the various regulators who look at these things, we want to make sure that they are, A, actually doing the the looking, and B, that the safeguards are in place such that, again, if I walk into a drugstore expecting to get results or my doctor's office, that the safeguards are in place that protect us from that. I think also, you know, you mentioned the venture capital community. Uh, Look, it's 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 a complicated thing because you don't want venture capital to shy away from ideas that could truly be game changing when it comes to our health. You want that kind of money to go after big and important ideas. But when you look at the money that actually went to Theranos in this case, it really wasn't primarily the biotech Right. The medical, the the MD PhD category of venture capital money wasn't going to Theranos. It was the broader, mostly family office money. And yes, there were some venture capitalists, but they weren't the ones that specialize in this area. So um, one of the one of the people who is in our podcast is um, Annie Lamont. Um, she she runs one of the biggest biotech venture capital firms. And, you know, I talked to her about this idea. Did she look at Theranos? She she didn't look at Theranos. Theranos barely really crossed her radar. And I think that's very telling because what it says to me is that there, there are legitimate ideas out there and there are, you know, obviously there are legitimate ideas out there and there are some really legitimate people pursuing them. I do think that it's a lesson as so many times over, whether it's the Bernie Madoff lessons of the world or the recession lessons of the world where everybody says, well, the smartest guys in the room or girls in the room or whatever it is, let's just follow them blindly. It reminds you to ask those questions. I mean, I think getting really granular on this subject, the, the, the step that Theranos was able to circumvent was FDA approval. And they did this by saying this was a laboratory test and then they shipped the blood off to a laboratory. I think it would be very appropriate to give the FDA power to shut down those kinds of tests. I, I also think... And I they, also, by the way, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, the no, FDA, no. there have been calls for the FDA to do that. And it, it is recently as um, the Obama administration in Congress, they were looking at doing that and then ended up not pursuing it at that point. And it's still something that's on the table, um, that loophole that uh, that that... Theranos took advantage of um, it still exists today. Yeah. So that's clearly got to be closed. Another thing is, uh, you know, my husband works at a biotech startup, and one of the issues they've had is um, the fact that you do have business people on the board. They've created a separate uh, scientist-based board of people that really understand the science, and then they hold separate meetings because they can understand, like, the chemistry, you know, all the things behind it. I don't know if the answer there is to mandate something like that, but I think certainly there's got to be, there's got to be something that looks at the composition of the board, which has a legal obligation to perform oversight. We've got to make sure the people on the board aren't just people that can, uh, you know, circumvent, uh, you know, 
institutions like the FDA, but people that can actually understand the science and can, you know, basically perform that check, which is their legal duty. I think those are two great points and two things that definitely, it it might not have kept this from happening, but it would have slowed it down dramatically. Let's take a brief break to have a word from our sponsor, Hover. This episode of Rocket is, of course, brought to you by Hover. Buying a domain name is the first step to building your online identity. With Hover, you find the domain that shows the world who you are and what you're passionate about. Uh, Christina, I think you and I are passionate about scams. We are so passionate about scams. And I'm actually, like, I would like to think that we planned this ad read with this guest and this topic. We actually did not. So uh, frequent listeners may recall that uh, a few, a few, like maybe six episodes, six, seven episodes back, um, I bought a little domain name using Hover, uh, Theranos.online. Actually, it's more than six uh, episodes ago. It's probably a couple months ago. But I bought a, a little domain name known as Theranos.online. I sure did. And uh, it will one day house my, uh, my dream, which is a store of um, uh, scam um, uh, merchandise. All your Firefest merch, all your Tanacon merch, all your Theranos merch. Christina, what did you like best about uh, using Hover to buy your so, your incredible domain name? Yes, and also uh, Elizabeth Holmes and, and and your your creditors. If you do want to buy it from me, I mean it's available, but um, it, it's going to cost you. No, my favorite thing. Um, so, a uh, disclosure: I've used and continue to use a number of different companies to register domain names um, and and have over the years. And the hard thing a lot of times is coming up with that good domain name. Like you'll, maybe you have a keyword that you know you want to use and you can of course check to see, does it have the .com, the .net, the .whatever. Um, But oftentimes if it's like a a common word, that's going to be taken or expensive. And so what I love about Hover is that it makes it really easy to see what your options are. Mm -hmm. But also if you put in a couple of words, it'll give you a suggestion. And sometimes what'll happen is that like the AI might not be something you would choose, but it'll like jog your memory and be like, oh, you know what? I'm not sure about that, but this gives me this idea. And so the, I really like how easy it makes it, A, to kind of browse what's available, but B, like if you just put in a couple of keywords, it'll give you some really good starters to come up with a really fun and creative domain name. Because I'm one of those people, I literally have so many domains that I've bought just because it was funny and I've never done anything <laughs> with. Uh, case in point, Theranos.online. I love this about uh, you so, I love it so much. Honestly, it, it's like it's like one of my defining personality things. Like I've owned the domain name according to wikipedia.com for over a decade. And the whole original impetus was to have like a blog dedicated to pointing out funny things on Wikipedia. Anyway, and I continue to renew it every year, even though I don't do anything with it. But like coming up with those things and finding what's available is harder than it looks. And so uh, Hover makes it really easy. And so I'm, I'm grateful to them and also grateful to all the uh, TLDs they offer because Theranos.online is mine. It's fantastic. Uh, Hover also offers a personalized email that matches your domain to further support your online identity. Christina at Theranosonline.online. No, 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 no. Elizabeth at Eli- Theranos.online. Oh, my God. Come on. Come on. <laughs> we we, we got to scam on. We, we You got to live the life of the scamster. They also have a best-in-class customer support team. So if you're in the market for a domain name, and you probably are because everyone has one these days, and you should probably get one, it's important for yours to stand out. 
Hover has over 400 domain name extensions for you to choose from, which can help you brand yourself online, as our own Christina Warren has. (laughs) Emphasizing her brand of scams. They also have a great option, which is .me, which is a great extension to showcase something like a portfolio and show everyone who you are and what you're good at. Like Christina's good at scamming. So if you have a great personal website ready for launch, grab that .me extension, put it up there. And if you're new to Hover, you can get an additional 10% off any domain extensions for your first year. Go to hover.com slash rocket now to check out their deals. It is time to get that portfolio website up and running, my friends. Hover.com slash rocket. Thank you so much, Hover, for your support of this show and Relay FM. Let's get back to Rebecca Jarvis. Let me ask you, uh, Rebecca, going back to the um, the dropout a bit, and I agree with you, Rhea, I think that those would be really good steps to take. One of the most compelling parts about the podcast is uh, that you have the depositions. You have uh, Holmes's deposition tapes which uh, and, and, and the depositions of other people. I'm imagining you can't tell us how you got access to those, but uh, I, if, if, but I mean that's such a treasure trove. Um, other than than you know uh, maybe teasing ahead other things that we might hear in the future about revelations that came from that that trove of of, of tapes, because that's just stunning to be able to have access because she's been so famously closed off of um, mm-hmm. even you know talking about anything and now having her words, as well as the words of, of, of Sunny Balwani and, and others involved, um, I mean, it really brings the whole thing uh, to life. We, we knew the deposition tapes existed. And this was something that my team and I, and I, I, I want to give a shout out here to my amazing co-producers and writers on this project, Taylor Dunn and Victoria Thompson. The three of us knew about these tapes. We wanted them. We asked Truly, every person we spoke to, it was kind of like, hey, have you seen the tapes? Do you have access to them? And when we got access to them, um, I can tell you that we had been, it was in the midst of being on this shoot for, uh, you know, a a 16-hour day. And when we got the Elizabeth Holmes deposition tape, we went back to our Airbnb and it was already like 10 o'clock at night. And for eight hours a day for three days, you hear her answer to all of these questions. They're pretty dense, by the way. But we just sat down on the couch and started watching at 10 o'clock at night. We did not stop watching until the first day was done because we were so... What's really remarkable in this story, and you said it, she... We've heard so little. Everything that every response to everything at this point has been so delicate. It's been the uh, you know the PR speak. It's been the press mm-hmm. releases, and yes, there have been interviews, but there's never been an interview with a scientist or somebody who could really break down the technology. And so, seeing her under oath have to answer these very black and white statements is. To me, that was one of the most stunning things in this project. And when we saw that, we knew at that point that there was an even bigger story to tell. Wow. That's amazing. Kind of on that same note, what do you think that it is? I have my own kind of theories, but what do you think that it is that makes this story so compelling? Because in addition to your podcast, and and I I think you're also doing a, a documentary for Nightline, is that correct? 
Yes. So we have the Nightline video documentary um, that part of it aired as a preview and more of it will air in the future. Okay. So you've got the podcast, uh, the the Nightline Project. Uh, John Kerry Rue's book obviously came out uh, last year. That's being made into a film directed by Adam McKay that Jennifer Lawrence is attached to. Um, Alex Gibney uh, has a documentary that will be on HBO, I think, sometime this year. So there's like a lot of, I think uh, Anna Delvey might be the only other scamster who has this type of media, you know, she, um, and, and She's our, our patron saint of this podcast, I should add. But what do you think that it is uh, about this story that is so compelling that, and I'll be honest, it's like Fire Festival for me. Like, I can't yeah. get enough. Like, I'm honestly, like, just injected in my veins. Like, give it all to me. <laughs> well, what, what do you think that it is about this story that's so compelling that, that you know, has the interest from so many, you know, different parts of, of the media world and the reporting world? Well, I think it it obviously it checks off a lot of boxes. This is a woman who had massive amounts of charisma and idealism and people wanted to believe what she said. And she got so much attention initially for it, but it also has a real life impact for anybody who's watching because it's this recognition that this thing any of us could have been in contact with it if the plans that Theranos talked about actually came to fruition. Um, I, I think that there's aspects of it, you know, the romantic aspects between she and Sonny Belwani, that's going to bring an audience of people who are interested in it. I also think that there's so many layers to it. You know, it's been interesting along this project. I have I ask myself questions every day about it, and I think new things every day as I'm walking and through the the various pieces of material and writing. And, you know, how did all of these smart people get it so wrong is a question that comes up. But I think there's also this question about ambition. And I, I lately I've been thinking about this as as a female and how ambition expresses itself as a female and how in in various platforms, how and and the reason I say various platforms is because now looking at the body of all of Elizabeth Holmes's representations, whether she's at the Glamour Women of the Year Awards mm-hmm. or she's on television or she's talking under a deposition or she's sitting next to George Schultz at a talk, I look at how I've been looking at her this, these videos of her various what she exudes in all of these different situations. And she's clearly a very ambitious person and definitely a very smart person. And I've been thinking a lot about how that manifests itself depending on the circumstance and how, in some ways, how as a female, she made choices Mm -hmm. or it appears she made choices about how it was going to manifest itself depending on her audience. Yeah, I think I think one of the things she managed to do in this is you really excelled at asking questions about gender that I don't think John Kerry could as well in his book. Like there's just a there's it's it's just perceived differently for a woman to come in and ask these questions and I think that's something you were really able to do. Like you talked about you talk about like how people at Stanford perceived her. You talked about her voice in a lot more detail and like the efforts of her to kind of alter this. So I think that's one of the real dynamics I want to give you credit for exploring. I've not seen that done in press or books or anything up until this point. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, it's, you know, and I, I've talked to a lot of women and men as well about this question about wanting to see a woman Mm -hmm. succeed in the position that she's in and how Mm -hmm. devastating. And, and a lot of women, 
you know, some of the women who I've interviewed, but women in, in various circles who have come in contact with this story, it's really devastating to feel like we had a shot. There was this, there was a shot. At we this had being, this. And now it's not. And, and, and what does that mean? And when, when we were talking earlier about venture capital money and being skeptical, you know, that's the downside mm-hmm. risk of the skepticism. You don't want the bad apple, the bad example, which happened to be the biggest example right. to be the one that defines all future interactions and opportunities. No, you're, you're right. I mean, so be, before I uh, moved into my, my current work, I was, I was a business reporter for, for 10 years. And, you know, when this happened, my first response was like, this is now set back female founders so far because yeah. she was such, it was, it wasn't, it's, it's bad enough when, when you have failures or whatnot. And, and people can, can look at Marissa Meyer and they can critique her. And I say, look, she, she tried, you know, and she, you can't say she wasn't a competent executive, but in this case, it's hard enough, as you say, for women to, to raise funding. Um, you know, I think the percentage is, is like ludicrous. It's like 2% or something. It's, right. it's like a really like insulting amount of money. So not only did she do it, she raised a lot of money. She had this high profile thing and then this ends up being the face of it. It's, it's, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, she's like the Carly Fiorina of like female, you know, uh, you know, VC execs. And, and I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, this is going to set us back, you know, another decade. I hope it doesn't. Do you have, from your reporting and from other people you've talked to in the venture community and in the, even, you know, the business community, have you, has there been an impact, do you think, implicit or explicit about, you know, this massive failure, um, impacting how they view young female founders? Personally, I think it's too soon to say that this has been, I think drawing an actual correlation sure. is, is is easier than specific causation. But at the same time, I think if you were to go back to the very specific investors who very specifically put their money with her, those would, you know, and this is just me thinking out loud here, but those would probably be the most likely people. Oh, if I've been burned by this particular thing, I'm going to be way, way more skeptical of this particular thing in the future, especially because those people may very well be looking inside and, and thinking about their own biases and their own beliefs and whatever it was that initially got them to invest in the first place. They're probably second guessing some of that. I think in a broader sense, I don't think that this is the sort of uh, A to B, X to Y, whatever it is. I don't think people are thinking in such um, explicit terms. But again, just in a grand sense, it just it's not a good thing. The the kind of publicity, it's just not a good thing. It's bad publicity, and it's just one more, even if it's a small little bit of subconscious, uh, it's something in someone's subconscious, it's not a good thing for female founders to have to come up against. But I also think that just even the category medical devices, I actually think that that is a bigger, uh, a bigger hurdle mm-hmm. to get over because of how nuanced and how complex the field is. And the fact that, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, in her case, you might've been able to sell this thing as a technology investment and therefore tech investors would have taken a look at it as opposed to specifically biotech or specifically medical device uh, investors. I think now it's more difficult to get that sort of broader money, tech investor money, for something like this. And I, back to my conversation with Kara Swisher. So Kara Swisher of Recode was um, 
she was approached by Elizabeth Holmes at a conference a few years ago. And Elizabeth Holmes said, Kara, you know, you should report on me. You should have me on at your conference. And Kara said, well, I don't know the first thing about medical devices. So no, like I don't, I don't, I I can't ask you the right questions because I'm not the right reporter to do that because this is not my background. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she, (laughs) Elizabeth came back with, well, you need more women at your conference. And Kara said, yeah, I know, but not you. Um, And (laughs) yeah, but but I do think, yeah, she's great. But I do think that that's one of those things that you know, it, it, it also as a journalist, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys think about this too, but it makes me think twice about going into interviews and really when it's hyper specialized thing, you have to know mm-hmm. what the conversation is going to be. And you have to make sure that you're asking the right questions and not just make it about the charisma or the personality or wanting to put someone on a pedestal just because they stand for things that you're aligned with. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I I did kind of want to, you touched on this a little bit, but this is something I've thought a little bit about. You know, it's interesting because the press in a lot of ways did obviously play a big role in building up the myth of Elizabeth Holmes. Um, But ultimately it was the press and and reporting that took it down. Um, I guess going forward, would that kind of be your advice to people when either if they're reporting on things or if they're reading things about these types of, you know, you know, stories that charismatic founders, especially if it's involving biotech, would you say just to be more, I guess, skeptical or look for more of the expertise behind it rather than, than, you know, the flashy New Yorker profiles and, and, you know, covers of, of Glamour magazine and things like that? Well, so we've had a lot of conversations. I've had a lot of conversations at ABC with producers about this. And what I've been saying is, it's you're kind of naturally skeptical as a reporter. So saying be more skeptical is hard. However, what I would say is don't allow a complicated answer to scare you away from asking the follow-up, even because you're in some cases, you might be a generalist and you might be asking somebody who's a specialist questions. And if a specialist comes back to you and uses heavy jargon and a lot of language that doesn't make sense, don't accept walking away from that interview because you're afraid that you're going to look stupid by asking the follow-up question to really clarify what you're hearing. Um, and and like I covered finance and the, the economy for Mm -hmm. many, many years. And I started out in a very hyper specialized world where everybody who was, um, consuming that content was mostly a specialist. And then I moved over to, um, CBS News and and was in a broader place and then eventually to ABC News. And what I learned there is you have to really be able to filter it down to the most common explainable level. And that means that you have to understand it from all these different angles. So don't be afraid as a young journalist or a journalist anywhere in your career to just continuously ask the follow-ups. Keep asking the follow-ups until you're satisfied. What happened in this case is it was written off as a trade secret and people accepted that Theranos continuously said it was a trade secret and could not, the technology could not be described as a result. If someone had said, wait, no, I'm sorry, I can't write about this or cover you unless you explicitly explain to me what is behind the trade secret, you know, maybe we would be at least we'd be reporting the story, but it would have happened five years ago now. I, I, I have to say, I think 
the the people that failed the public here, I don't think it's reporters. I think it's 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 appropriate to ask those kinds of questions. But I think the causality here is clearly finding loopholes in the regulatory apparatus, and you know also bringing on a board with enough political clout to get you know, Theranos held to a, a different standard than other medical companies are. So I think something you said earlier, and I just want to loop back around to, I think it's really, really true that we need to have a conversation about how smaller tech companies can work with the FDA to get a result. Uh, a really good example, like there's a blood pressure uh, sensor that will connect to your iPhone uh, and will record that and let you record those things and have it all in a nice database you can show to your doctor. There are difficulties in bringing products like that to market because it is so unbelievably expensive to go through FDA testing. So I think we can have a conversation about, is there a role for the federal government to subsidize smaller companies maybe to help them go through and get that science right? Because it's just, I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars. It really locks out innovation to only the big players. At the same time, require companies like Theranos that have those bigger resources to really, uh, you know, go through the scientific testing. People don't appreciate this, but Richard Nixon, one of his his greatest legacies, is the FDA and these standards. And those standards are held for every single, um, for most major companies in the world, for most major countries in the world when it comes to patent. This exists to keep the public safe. And I think the answer here is not to critique journalists, but to invest more in making uh, that, that very necessary regulatory apparatus work for everyone involved. I agree with you. I also do personally, as a journalist, personally, I just think I will hold myself accountable going forward. And and I've personally learned from this story. And I don't, I again, um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to in, suggest that journalists are the reason that this story is what the story is. Definitely. But I do think, I do think it's important to remind ourselves, um, and, and you, you both play in this world that's hyper, hyper specialized. And so you're so tapped into a hyper specialized world. There are so many journalists who are not. And I think the, the main message to them and, and, and I say it to myself is don't be afraid to ask the follow-up question, even if you think it's stupid, because you, if you walk away, not knowing, then so does the viewer. You're dead on. And thank you for continuing to ask the follow-up questions. And uh, thank you for the dropout. I'm looking forward to the next episodes that continue to come out. And thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. What you're doing is great. I love what you're doing. Thank you. So that was our interview with Rebecca Jarvis. And as we said, you can listen to Rebecca's amazing podcast, uh, The Dropout, and we've got links uh, to all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, so now we're going to get into some other news. But first... Uh, we've got a little bit of, we've got an ad read and uh, disclosure, we recorded this in advance and something happened uh, and you're just gonna have to listen to to what, but uh, Simone is is in fine form. I guess what I did, I just spilled water all over my mattress, but it's fine. This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Eero. <laughs> With Eero, you can build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored to your home. Considering the high bandwidth world that we live in now, you need a dis distributed system in your home to make sure you get the best speeds available so you can record your podcast in any room of your house, including your bedroom, where you just spilled water all over your bed. 
and then you dropped a bunch of paper on the ground. And with Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes, even if your butt is kind of wet because you just spilled water on your bed where you're recording your podcast. It starts, it all starts here with the second-gen Eero device. It has three 5 gigahertz radios, which allows for increased speed and range. It sits flat on any surface, much like me, and connects either over Ethernet or wirelessly. Then, you can easily expand the coverage throughout your whole home by adding in some Eero beacons. These are small devices that plug directly into your wall, again like me, allowing you to reach every corner of your home. And Eero is now introducing Eero Plus. This is designed to provide simple, reliable security to help defend all the devices in your home from malware, phishing, and unsuitable content, like me. Eero Plus can automatically tag sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content so that you'll have powerful parental controls at your fingertips. It also includes ad-blocking functionality to help improve load times for websites that are full of privacy-invading ad-tracking. It is also possible to have Eero Plus check the sites that you visit against a database of millions of unknown threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious, like my Twitter account. Eero Plus even includes subscriptions to 1Password for password management, Malwarebytes for antivirus solutions, and Encrypt.me. Brianna, you yes. have been enjoying... It's been like two, one, two years that you've had the Eero now? I, I don't know how long it's been, but it's it's a fantastic product. Your life beforehand has just faded into fog. It was it was legitimately slow internet access. I was going through Apple's uh, airport, which we all know it still has not been updated, even though it's been years. Oh god! Oh no! So, well, no, they discontinued it. They like, discontinued they're not, they're, right. Yeah. yeah. So like to me. I like to stay in an ecosystem that is safe and high quality. And to me, this is the very best uh, router slash Wi-Fi product you can buy. I just think it's wonderful. Nice. Well, if you would like to never think about Wi-Fi again, get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. That's nuts. By going to Eero.com slash rocket and check out using the promo code rocket. That is again Eero, E-E-R-O dot com slash rocket. And they offer code rocket at checkout. Thank you so much, Eero, for your support of this show and Relay FM. So we found out yesterday, amazingly, Angela Ahrens, after five years of heading up retail at Apple, is moving on, and Deirdre O'Brien, the former head of HR, is now the uh, senior vice president of retail plus people at Apple. Uh, you all know Angela Ahrens. I think she actually, I remember talking about her when she took on that role at Apple. She's been um, in that role for five years. She expanded the blueprint of the stores uh, after formerly working on Burberry retail spaces. Got rid of the Genius Bar, replaced it with the the dark, expansive Genius Grove, which we all are so familiar with. Uh, and she was actually just profiled in Vogue last week, talking about her plans for Apple stores, uh, which is a confusing timeline because she won't be working on them anymore. And she was also seen as a potential successor to Tim Cook. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel kind of torn about this. I mean, on one hand, 
I think it's important to remember a lot of the changes for the store are not meant for us. Like every time I go in there to buy something or get my you know stuff fixed, there are classes for people that, you know, they're not really tech-minded people, like learning to edit videos or record things on their phone or shoot pictures. And like they're always well attended. So, I mean, I think this is successful. It's just not intended for us. And like you said, Simone, um, the genius bar situation has really become untenable, I think, for many of us. So, Yeah, I, I would agree. But yet I don't know how anybody else could fix that. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you scale when you have a billion active devices out in the world and you, you know, you need to offer support and and like one of your like flagship things is that you can offer support. Scaling that is really, really hard, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, when you have that many devices that are active and that, 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 you, that people are going to want to help for and that you've you know, because your support has historically been so good and you have this place to go, people are like, oh, we want to go to the Genius Bar or the Genius Grove or whatever. Um, I have noticed that support has become less good over the years. But at the same time, I don't know if it would be possible for any company to scale it and keep it at that level because I just don't think the number of people who would be like experts and really good at that, I don't think that exists at what you're able to pay retail people to do or even yeah. actually even even if money wasn't an option i don't know if that number of people exists yeah i think that's fair i remember when i went to buy my ipad the other day um yeah i'm not like the person i bought it from was a perfectly nice human being but i remember really being taken aback by how little he knew about the product mm-hmm. um and that has been kind of a a consistent thing so i do think it's two things like partially the people that Apple has hired, in my experience, seem to be less, you know, Apple fans and knowing the the quirks and features of Apple Definitely. things. And I agree with you that it's hard to scale, but there are things Apple could control. I've noticed Apple is a lot um, more closed off from giving you like free repairs or the benefit of the doubt or doing you a favor than they were five years ago. And I feel like if they can't scale it, then they should be leaning more on goodwill rather than less. And that's all my personal experience, but it's still how I feel. What do we think uh, Deirdre O'Brien is going to maybe bring to this position? Is it, It's interesting because she she's still heading up HR. So I saw... Yeah, that, that I don't love. I'm going to be yeah. honest. That feels weird to me. It feels like those are two really distinct positions. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if I'm just going to say it, I would feel weird if I were an employee who was not part of the retail space, knowing that my HR person now has that under their purview, because that's a lot of stuff to control. I mean, obviously, just being in charge of HR when you have you know, um, over a hundred thousand employees like Apple does mm-hmm. because of, of, of their retail things. That's massive, right? That's, that's a massive undertaking, but then to Apple take the HR store includes on top of that. like retail employees. Yeah, of that's course. Mass- I was wondering if they had two separate, I guess. I don't, uh, to my knowledge, one. I mean, yeah. I have no idea to my knowledge. It, it's the same. Um, I, I'm sure that they have like people who are in charge of, you know, SVPs who are in charge of, of certain sectors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but still just, just, the ma- I, I don't know. I just feel like that's a big job for somebody to have to control both retail as well as all up people operations for the company. That that's that's a lot. 
I saw musing on Twitter that maybe it was a sort of acknowledgement that retail is about people, the people who come into the store, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they don't seem, they seem to be very distinct things to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't, I know there are a lot of hardworking HR professionals and I don't want to denigrate anyone's professional experience, but I'm trying to think of any HR person I've met over my career that I think could have a background to do something like run, you know, like a a Mm -hmm. worldwide chain of stores. It just seems like very different skills. Granted, some of the things we're talking about, the like my issues with the Apple store do have a lot to do with the employees and the freedom they're given. So maybe that's a good background, but yeah. I just it's I'm I'm skeptical. Um I also have to say this just as a as a feminist, I I've the moments where Angela has been on stage at Apple keynote, I think people are very quick to forget what it was like even five, six years ago where there was zero diversity on stage. Mm -hmm. It's gotten much better. And with, um, oh, what's the name of the the woman that went over to Uber? Uh, Boise St. John? Um, uh, Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, Bozeman St. John. Bozeman St. John, right. With her leaving and now Angela, I mean, those are two of the highest profile women at Apple that Mm -hmm. moved on to other opportunities. It's disheartening. Um, Yeah. So. I do think as whatever my personal difficulties with the Apple store may be. I do think that she's left a secure blueprint for Deirdre O'Brien to sort of build on. Totally. And and I mean, frankly, I will say I loved um, Angela at Burberry and I would really, I mean, if she does go back to, you know, fashion or, I mean, that that's, who knows what she's going to do. We've made it very clear in the announcement that she's not retiring. Mm-hmm. I would love to see her run a fashion house again because I do think that her time at Burberry was really transformative and was really good. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why it was so exciting when she joined Apple. Um, and so I, I would, I would love to see that again. But I'm, in addition to missing kind of her stage presence and whatnot, like, she was so fashionable. Like I'm gonna miss mm-hmm. seeing oh. like the outfits. I'm I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be based there. I'm gonna be based and be like I'm gonna miss the outfits on stage. <laughs> it's, it's, you're not wrong. And I want to say like we've talked about this often on Rocket, but um, I have looked everywhere for a fashionable like purse to carry my iPad Pro around in, and it still doesn't exist, Christina. Like it really shocks me that in 2019, no one has figured out that women like Apple gadgets. <laughs> We need like cool things to carry them around in. Like, maybe that's a, what Angela Aarons is going to do with her life now. <laughs> I hope so. I yeah, mean, I do too. Like, bring us, make us, make us, give us the tech like purses, like things of our dreams. Yeah, because because the thing is, is and you're exactly right. Like the people who want that, a women spend money on you know bags and things like that. Like, I just bought a new handbag because I saw it in my Facebook feed, and Kate Spade like had new arrivals, and I was like, okay, um, <laughs> what is it? which one and, is it? Uh, it's pink. I'll send it to you. It's really pretty. I, it'll fit my iPad. I don't. It won't fit my laptop, but it will fit my iPad. But it, it it's beautiful. But um, it hasn't arrived yet. But um, okay. I was in Milan and I was like, um, I, I never go on Facebook anymore. And I saw it in my feed and I was like, okay, I'm gonna buy this. And I did. Um, I'm glad that little... Facebook's ad algorithms kept up with you, even if you weren't on. <laughs> Oh, and also, you know, I might have been a little drunk, but um, it, 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 I mean, I was in Milan. Come on. Come on. But, Kate Spade has never purchased that you wake up after being drunk and you're like, oh, I made and you a bad regret. decision. Yeah. Never, never. never. It, it, yeah. It's not like the laptop where you're like, 
did I really? And then you're like, oh, this, this was good. It was a good decision. But anyway, it was it was it was fine. But, um, you know, we'll spend money, period. And then we'll spend more money if it fits like a, a, a business and, and like technological and like, you know, like efficiency need. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. these companies are leaving all this money on the table because it's like, yes, I will pay your stupid pink tax to get a really great looking bag that stores all my gadgets. Like, I will pay it. I just, I would do anything for an iPad Pro 11-inch case with the place to put a stylus that yes. wasn't, like, so huge. That Do you know, like, the bags? Totally. The Kate Spade bags tend to be, like, six inches wide at the bottom. It's just right. really lunky to carry around. Yeah. I just, I want, I, there's, a slim there's bag. A, a slim bag. I want that, Simone. And I can't even find it on Etsy because even the people that make custom leather, it looks like I'm a, a cowgirl, right? Yeah, <laughs> like it's God, just not no. my aesthetic. So. Okay, Angela, if you're listening, we do a great job out there. We'll miss you. Please make us some bags. I know this isn't exactly your job, but just a suggestion. <laughs> Um, yeah, so seriously. she's living in April. Is she going to be appear? Are there any Apple events between now and then that we'd be able to see her at? <laughs> One last time, we know her of. Not that we know. Of. I mean, there have been r- some rumors that there might be another iPad event or something, but who knows? I mean, I'm hope. I mean, look, that would be it. Would be great if there was. I would. Be, I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah. If you would like to read the Vogue business article where she talks about her plans for Apple's retail, to read between the lines, there, uh, that's in our show notes, so you can check that out. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Burrow. Your home is important. And you want to come home to somewhere that feels comfortable, maybe even looks stylish. Not even maybe. This is literally all I care about. You want a home that is designed to fit you. Burrow believe high-quality furniture should be more accessible, and that is why you can easily customize your own sofa online and have it shipped fast and free within that same week. The Burrow sofa adapts to your life. It is scratch and stain resistant, so you don't have to worry about spills. It has a built-in USB charger, so you can charge your devices right from the sofa. Wait, which, wait, yes, wait, wait. I'm wait, not kidding. Wait, it, wait. It's in the sofa, Christina. It, okay, no, that's like a game changer. I'm not even joking. And I, I I, hate my current sofa. This is like not part of the ad read. This is like legit me learning about this and realizing I hate my current sofa and that there's a sofa that has a USB thing built in, which my suitcase having that has been life-changing, but my sofa, mm-hmm. that'd be like one less thing to have to get up and like find like a cable to like run like from around the back of the sofa because, you know, that's what you do now. Yeah, literally when I was so sh- sofa shopping and like looking at all the the specs, when I got to that point, I was like, oh, and the person I was shopping with was like, oh, you, you, you can plug in your sofa. I'm the fabric so into this. It's totally free of harmful chemicals. And the frame is made from sustainably sourced hardwood, which I, again, as a sofa shopper, recent sofa shopper, uh, know is the best wood to make sofas out of because it lasts longer. And it's a sofa that grows with you. You can make burrows bigger at any time by adding new pieces uh, because they're they're flat pack. And you can easily set up and disassemble with no tools required. They just latch together and then they sit in your living room. Burrow sofas are designed for comfort. You can customize every detail. Pick comfy low armrests or stylish high ones. The proprietary foam is supportive yet super cozy. And they also have a line of stylish pillows and throws made from soft, hand-woven fabric ready to complement your new sofa. 
Burrow recently got named one of Time's best inventions. So, you know, uh, you're gonna be amazed. You can save $75 by visiting burrow.com slash rocket. That is B-U-R-R-O-W burrow.com slash rocket for $75 off your order. I find this hilarious. This is also not part of the ad read. Uh, Like I said... I was sofa shopping recently. Um, I did not know that they were sponsoring us, and I literally just bought a freaking burrow sofa. Um, and I love it. I got I got a charcoal one with low arms. I literally made a spreadsheet. This is how intense I was, y'all. I literally made a spreadsheet of sofas because this was like a big adult purchase for me. I've been on the IKEA sofas for like eight eight years now. And I was like, okay, it's time for like that mid-price sofa. It's time for me to take the next step up. Um, and I looked at a ton, an absolute ton of sofas. I wanted this style that had like a low profile because um, I have a small living room and I wanted the low arms so I could lean my head on them. Uh, and like everything that I found was in this sofa and it was just delivered to my house on Saturday. Uh, and I got like the um, white white glove service. So they built it for me right in my living room. And uh, I am in love with it. I love it. I love the sofa. So again, I'm I'm like I'm like looking at this right now. I'm not. Uh, yeah, uh, it's really I think I'm gonna have to check out I'm gonna check out one of their showrooms or something. Like this is awesome. Yeah. This is really. Good. I can. My roommate fell asleep on it this morning for like a couple hours. So yeah, can vouch for that. Again, that was burrowcom rocket. Thank you so much, Burrow, for your support of Rocket and Relay FM. So the SS7 protocol for smartphones is. Often it can be exploited to intercept text messages or phone calls or to track phones, but uh, Motherboard reports now that it's been used to access funds at UK's Metro Bank. Essentially, hackers were able to obtain people's account information, perhaps by phishing them, and then exploit SS7 to get the TFA codes that were sent to their phones through text messages so that they could then log into the bank accounts and take some money. So this is another wonderful reminder of why authenticator apps are really, really wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And we should use them. Yes. But the problem is with this, an authenticator app wouldn't have helped this situation. Like the entire point of this is they're able to circumvent TFA. Uh, Motherboard had a previous article. Isn't that about like the text messages with codes being sent rather than codes yes. sent through an authenticator app? Yeah, yes. absolutely. But the problem, and that's really true, that would help this. But the problem is TFA is being circumvented. And then there was an even more disturbing, um, there was a really disturbing story from Motherboard a few months ago where they were able to get access to the entire backbone for just $10,000. Oh, no. Which is even like they got somebody to go work at one of these companies, get on the inside, and then you know, basically pay this money to get unlimited access to this. So this is this is a really, really concerning uh, tech vulnerability story, all the more so because they just testified a few months ago that no one was going to be doing these kinds of attacks, so they didn't need <laughs> to upgrade it. Ah, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Don't worry about it. Everybody's good. And then it's like, actually... Oh, wait. No. So I this one line stuck out to me from the Motherboard article. They wrote that uh, a source familiar with the attacks said that it's been used globally, but that American banks seem to be less impacted. I, I don't understand why that would be, other than maybe that Americans are using less TFA, and so they don't need to use the exploit. Yeah. Is th- I mean, is that the reason? 
<sighs> I mean, I mean that could be the case. They might be using something differently. I'm not sure. I don't know like enough about how the various TFA systems work. If there's another authentication protocol that they would use that might be similar that you know, in theory, might even be less secure. Who even knows? I'm not sure because uh, I'm certainly not giving U.S. banks like the credence of being like, oh, they're they're going to be more ahead of this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like I know with Bank of America, they have um, the app that they use has like a, a TFA thing, but it's through their own system. If that makes sense, oh. it's like I don't get a text message, but it's also not one of those Google Authenticator things. It's weird, okay. however it works. So I don't know if, if that's the case, but it could be as simple as um, we just don't use it. Yeah. Like I, that could be a completely fair thing. Because I know like in general, one of the things that like Bank of America does, in addition to whatever their, their you know, uh, two-factor system, is they'll be like, oh, here's a photo and here's a security question. And here's like you have to enter in some sort of passcode that's different from your password mm-hmm. to anytime we recognize that you're accessing something from an IP address that's different than your usual range of IP addresses. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that, 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 and in theory, I don't really think that's more secure than using some other methods, but that's, I know that's, they're my bank. So that's, I know what they do. But I also know that like City, because I have a City account as well and, and they're, giant pains in the rears um but they they have you know convoluted systems too so i don't know Mm -hmm. upgrading standards as technology evolves is just par for the course right like you know uh you know ssl that has certainly evolved in order to you know obviate vulnerabilities that we've discovered like this isn't this doesn't make the cellular backbone like a fundamentally bad technology we just need it's very clear that the private entities kind of agreeing on these protocols they need to step up what they're doing they need mm-hmm. to institute better security procedures and the the part to me that's frustrating here isn't that people have found um, vulnerabilities, that's par for the course because yes. true security doesn't exist. What I find frustrating is when they're testifying and talking to reporters and saying these kind of vulnerabilities will never happen. We don't need to worry about this. No. You need to be investing in this and you need to be working with partners to improve this. To me, I don't like I understand the the step of like introducing civil liability into this is a very aggressive step, but like this is our bank accounts. This is, you know, our private emails. This is everything. So they've got to get really serious about addressing this. And this is where policy in Washington has a role to play. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything that all my years of being alive and being on this show have taught me, it's that it is a continual arms race in security to just keep staying ahead of the curve there because eventually something will break down in that in that chain and then people will be vulnerable. Fortunately, according to uh, the sources that Motherboard talked to, they say the attacks are, quote unquote, highly targeted and something that members of the general public don't necessarily have to worry about. I'm wondering if that means they targeted like specific, like high, high profile people or if they targeted like the very vulnerable people who would fall for phishing attacks and things like that. It doesn't necessarily make it clear. I want to talk very carefully about this, but I will say for me as someone running for Congress, there have been 
things that have happened that I have needed to report to people um, that have looked like targeted uh, attacks on like my emails, on my cell phone, on things like that. Um, so to me, this is granted because it's my own life. It's, you know what I mean? It's more terrifying. Like this, the fact that it's highly targeted, that is more scary to me. That's not less scary. It's kind of this ability to take anyone down that, uh, you know, foreign government or mm-hmm. rogue hackers or anyone would, you know, feel like targeting. Uh, well, I guess, I mean, good news for our listeners, bad news for maybe you, unless all of our <laughs> listeners are uh, political candidates. <laughs> Do you guys have any any other thoughts on this? Nope, works for me. All right. Brianna, I know you wanted to talk about the hideous week that we've had here in uh, journalism, uh, BuzzFeed oh and Vice. It's terrible. It yeah. affects you guys more than me, but uh, you know, what I thought was so interesting is we just covered this, uh, you know, this cellular backbone story, which was very heavily reported by Motherboard. And, you know, Motherboard was hit very hard with these kinds of layoffs. Uh, something that really strikes me is... You know, the New York Times does have good coverage about tech issues eventually, but in my experience, it's the, you know, real web 2.0 outlets like Fox Media, Vice, you know, that that really break these security stories. Ars Technica has the best coverage mm-hmm. on this ever. And totally. I just it, like cable news doesn't cover it and I was I was tweeting about this. It really struck me last week um that at my gym they have Fox News right next to uh CNN and MSNBC and Fox News is doing an hour talking about potential deep fakes legislation and then CNN and MSNBC are talking about like uh you know a deleted tweet from a bad presidential candidate yeah. and so it's like cable news doesn't make talking about tech issues a priority in a way that they should uh so when you're talking about these kinds of uh mass layoffs this has really serious consequences uh to democracy so um i'm i, I was just really sad about that how did both of you feel like you work in media well i mean i don't like anymore Currently, as a day right. job yeah. so but i obviously know lots of people who have been impacted at buzzfeed and i don't think the the vice layoffs are clear yet. They've just said they're doing 10% of the staff, which is massive, which mm-hmm. means that I have friends who work at Vice. I have friends who work on the HBO show. Um, and I found out and I was immediately texting them and being like, are you okay? And their response is, I don't know, which is oh. really scary and terrible. Um, you know, the BuzzFeed stuff, uh, I knew a lot of people who were impacted, people that I'd worked with in the past, um, uh, people that I'd just known socially. You know, um, Gannett had uh, big layoffs. Uh, you know, uh, Verizon uh, Media, you know, had big layoffs. Um, I don't know how many of those impacted um, tech, uh, journalism specifically, but I do know that HuffPo, who had already had some layoffs, you know, apparently is going to have some more. Um, and and, and it, it tended this time to be a lot of senior level uh, employees, which is always kind of a bad sign. Usually what we've seen happen with digital media companies is either you see the full-on implosion like Mike where, you know, everybody's gone or, you know, they'll kind of maybe some high-level execs will be gone and then it'll kind of be dispersed around the staff. This time it seemed to be like they were really going after 
the senior people, which typically means these are the people who are paid more. Yeah. Um, and that's always a bad sign. Like, not to say that it's ever good for anybody to be laid off, but it's always to me, like when they're getting rid of like some of their star people and people who have been there a really long time and have the institutional knowledge, that's always scary because you're like, oh, this means things are bad and this really is about budget cutting and and you know, maybe making decisions that long term are not your best decisions, right? Yeah. Um, but but because you feel forced to. So it's it's bad. And what's what's um interesting, I haven't read it yet. And and uh my uh my good friend Heidi Moore wrote the review for The Guardian about Jill Abramson, uh the former executive editor of the New York Times. <laughs> she has a new book. Um uh and uh and Heidi's Heidi's review was critical but but also you know seemed good. But it was it's interesting that that book like got a hand it to Jill Abramson. She nailed it because the two media companies, she profiles four media companies in the book, she, uh, the New York Times, her former employer, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Vice. And literally the week that the book is coming out, because it comes out, uh, I believe, on Friday, uh, is, um, or, or maybe it came out uh, today, I don't even know. I, I'm going to read it on the plane. I know when I go to Australia, uh, it literally is is as you are seeing these major layoffs in the digital industry. Um, so, you know, kudos to you, Jill. You genuinely got like a news hook like you your book timing couldn't have been more perfect but illuminati but but it is kind of but but the whole kind of thing of that book is about kind of the the changing nature of the news business and it's really scary as somebody who worked in it for a long time who loves it who like deeply deeply loves it to see what's happening and to see what's happening to to my friends and i mean simone you're you're still in it you know Mm -hmm. and i'm so glad you're in a union um, that that's Me one too. thing I would say is is you know uh, Vice is unionized, uh, which is amazing. Uh, HuffPo is unionized. Uh, uh, BuzzFeed is not, um, and and I think that uh, to me, uh, I would say to anybody who's listening to this who works in media, if you're not in a union, unionize. Yeah, I'm very glad that we got. I mean, we got in there. I think right before our layoffs last year, um, which were fortunate. It was. I mean. Not fortunately, because it, it did still suck, but it was not a, a large amount of people overall, like not compared to 10% of Vice. Um, so I'm I'm very happy to be where I am, very relieved to be where I am. But it, ju- it really does, I guess, put into question like what is – because these places we've – these are all places that we have cited on Rocket as uh, producing interesting stories. We've talked about their writing. Mm-hmm. Um, they all had really good reporters um, and put out really good work. And that they weren't able to make that viable in in the industry, the way that the industry is right now. So it really, it's disheartening. It's, yeah, that I think that that's pretty much how I feel about it. And I hope I, I don't know how, I guess, New York City is going to handle <laughs> the uh, 2,700. Was that the number you gave, Bree? Like a massive number of uh, people now job hunting and freelancing. Yeah. but Well, it's important to say a lot of those are for Gannett, which is across yes. the entire country. All right. So. All right. And, 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 it, and it's also important to say that, unfortunately, this is not new to media. What, what's, new to, what's new about this and what I think makes it hit home to a lot of us is that this is really the first time we've seen this massively hit digital places. Yeah. In the past, you know, print has been going through this for the last 15 years. 
but this is the first time we're really seeing it hit media places. And then when you look at places like Buzz and Vice, which were kind of hailed as like the future of things, mm-hmm. like I think in the BuzzFeed case, especially what's kind of frustrating is that, and this again kind of goes to the business models of, of raising venture comp- uh, money and whatnot, yeah. but, but the thing is they're making money. They're, yeah. they're bringing in big revenue. It's not like they're losing. They're just not making the growth that investors want. And, and, and they're not doing the margins they want. And, you know, that's disappointing. That's disappointing, especially when the journalism is so good. I saw a really, uh, I saw a thread about an article on Patreon just yesterday about how sort of those venture capital investments that have been made in Patreon are about to be called back and how that makes just absolutely no sense because the Patreon model scales, but it doesn't scale at I get the rate that uh, venture capitalists want. And so it, it just, it really it is unfortunate that that model just seems to be kind of a blessing and a curse for, for yep. certain services. And with BuzzFeed, especially like the, the sort of des- desecration is not the word that I want, but decimation is also not because I don't know if it's one out of 10 people, whatever. What happened to their news desk is so disappointing because they've done so much good news. And I, I feel like it's always been undercut by that other side of BuzzFeed that is like the quizzes and the, the, the kind of fluffier articles that drive m- maybe more traffic. Um, but people always disrespect BuzzFeed news reporters when I don't, I think that they're great. It gets me angry. It makes me me really angry. I had a tweet that, um, you know, I was talking about my heart goes out to all the BuzzFeed reporters uh, today lost their job. That got picked up by a bunch of people on the alt-right and Uh my Twitter was unusable for like four days. And it's, it's just BS. Like I get that their quizzes, uh, have some effect on public perception, the news work they do, but any intelligent thinking person that understands or actually reads these stories knows that like their NatSec team has broken some of the most important stories in the Without business. Without a doubt. Well, and they took the, they took the big R. Kelly expose that yes, nobody absolutely. else would touch. That nobody else would. They, they took the Jim uh, uh, uh thing and he came from the Chicago Sun-Times and has been a nominee for a Pulitzer. Like, he was mm-hmm. a freelancer that they took on. Like, and, and, and they've been nominated for Pulitzers. Um, and, yeah, I mean, look, is there is there ridiculous content? Yes, there is. You know what? There's ridiculous content in the New York Times. There's ridiculous content in the Washington Post. The yeah. style section exists for a reason. They, you know, um, a former public editor of the New York Times, uh, um, uh, Margaret Sullivan, who is a gem and a, an amazing, amazing uh, person. She's now the media uh, reporter uh, for the Washington Post. She kind of coined this uh, this thing to kind of make fun of the Times about like monocle. Um, <laughs> stories where they'd like make fun of she'd make fun of a typical Times style section story that would be like oh look at this quaint kind of weird you know uh, thing that that we've just discovered and we're focusing on and we're going to make it seem like it's so highbrow um, so every organization does that that's part of news but mm-hmm. you're dead on like people dismiss BuzzFeed oh they just do cat videos and viral this and that or oh yeah. Vice is just wanting to be uh, gone that's just and purposely it's like, ignorant to say that it is and but you know what even if it's not have some freaking compassion. Yes. Even if all they did was terrible stuff, have some freaking compassion. Like I, I, cause I knew that, uh, cause I was getting some of the similar things you were, Brie. And I, I tweeted because my, again, my friend Heidi was commenting on some of the reactions that people were having. And I remember every single person, every single media jerk who made a offhanded crappy comment when Mashable had layoffs in 2016. I remember every single yeah. day. 
every single name. And I won't forget. And it's funny because some of those people have now come to me and have wanted to talk about switching careers. Ha. And oh. well, and you know what? Good luck. I'm sorry. Like, I'm petty. I'm petty when it comes to that. When you, if you're going to make fun of people that I worked with and if you're going to to diminish other stuff or if you're just going to be a bad person, like it takes literally no effort to keep your mouth shut when somebody uh, has layoffs. The yep. Neiman, uh, the, the Harvard, Harvard's uh, journalism thing or whatever, had a column about basically, oh, well, now that BuzzFeed is having layoffs, now really have to take it seriously. Because you could just say, oh, you know, Mashable and Mike were ridiculous anyway. And yeah. a lot of us got really upset because she didn't need to have that comment. And also should point out, she worked at GigaOM. So I'm sorry, stop throwing stones, chick. Like, honestly, like if you really want to get down to brass tacks, you have no right to talk about anything. Anyone who worked at BuzzFeed is listening and snapping their fingers right now. But but you know what I mean? And 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 but like, but that's the sort of thing. It's like it's yeah. not you you expect it from the alt-right. What really gets me is media is watchers when it's and fellow media people, people who, like in the and industry. They're like, oh, well, whatever. And it's like, you know what? It literally takes no effort to keep your mouth shut. You can yep. have your opinion, go for it. It literally takes no effort to be a human being and say, I didn't like this company, but they're doing layoffs. If Fox News had massive layoffs, I would not cheer. I would be very sad nope. for all those people who work hard. And yeah. I would, it takes literally no effort to keep your mouth shut. And that's the thing that's so frustrating to me. But sorry, that's me. I'm interested to, I mean, I think we're we're probably going to end up talking about Jill Abramson's book because I, having just heard about the uh, factual inaccuracies on a very specific personal level in it, I am super interested to hear if there will be any repercussions uh for her on that there won't be. we'll talk about it after no. you read there won't it be, but yeah no i actually just downloaded it i think it just came out so i'm gonna i'm gonna read this uh well, yeah we should talk about it next week but um yeah anyway all right let's let's bring it on home christina what are you doing this week well you guys will will be shocked shocked to hear that i'm uh, i'm traveling what <gasps> no what? Yeah. So um, I uh, I got back from Milan. Milan was great other than almost passing out on stage. And we won't talk about it. It was humiliating. It was fine. The people of Milan are lovely. Thank no. you. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, so this week, I'm actually, as I'm recording this, I'm in a hotel room like 10 miles, eight miles away from where I live uh, because we're having um, a, a work summit. And also it is snowing in Seattle and Seattle is even <laughs> is even less equipped to deal with like winter weather than the city of Atlanta which I didn't think was possible. Um so I I I'm uh, uh you know um meeting with a bunch of work colleagues and doing that stuff but on Saturday I am flying to Sydney, Australia. I am is this the first time that you've been to Australia? Yes, yes, I'm I so excited. I can't wait to hear about it. I hope you come back with like an accent. That's what oh, I'm I do hoping. too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, no. So I'm going to be there for um, a week. So I will be there. I, 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 well, because of the time zone changes, I'll be there close to a week. So basically, I'm going to be leaving the United States on Saturday, but then I don't get in until Monday morning, and then I'll be leaving um, on a flight on Sunday um, mm-hmm. from Australia. So um, I'll be there for a week, and actually. Even though there's a 19-hour time difference between me and um, Australia, because of uh, it kind of works in my favor because it's so far ahead, I will actually be able to record Rocket next week. I'm so excited. So I'm excited about that. Um, we will also be doing, and I'll be putting the details on my Twitter once we know more of the, uh, or we do have the information, but but 
uh, do it with a landing page. For anybody who is in the Sydney area, we're going to be doing an event both with uh, people on my team with the Azure Advocates as well as the Windows Insider team, including Donna Sarkar, who's an amazing oh, uh, woman. Her. She's, She's the a best. rock star. She is a rock star. But we're going to be doing an all-day event at the Microsoft Store in Sydney uh, on Saturday the 17th. And so uh, please join us if you are in the Sydney area. It's free. It'll be available. Or excuse me. Fe- yeah, Saturday the 16th. Sorry, Saturday the 16th. It'll be free. We'll even have events for, for families um, to come and do stuff to do coding with Minecraft and things like that. And we'll be having just kind of like panel discussions, talking to to developers and and Windows um, insiders and just you know fans, whatever. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. So um, I'll post the details on on Twitter uh, once I have more of the once I can find like the landing page and whatnot. But uh, if you're in Sydney, please stop by. Also, Rocket Rules do apply. So if you are a, a, a listener down under, uh, I will uh, I will promise to not buy you a Heineken. Uh, or not Heineken, a uh, uh, what was Foster's? I'll buy you a real Australian beer, um, or or another drink of your choice. So, yeah, that's me. I'm going to be in Australia, and I'm so excited. Yay, Brianna, what about you? Uh, so I am. What am I doing this week? I am in hell, y'all. I no. am working to buy a house, and I thought it was going to be so stressful because we're just buying this house from the woman we rent it from, and it's so stressful. It's so stressful. It's terrible. It's so bad. Uh, other than that, you know, we're really focused on 2020. I, I have to tell you guys, it is going so much better this time around. Yeah. It is, uh, it is amazing. I rolled in last night. Just the kind of event, it would have had me nervous last time around. I knew half the people in the room already. I'm working it. I'm answering all these questions about policy because I've done it a thousand times. I know how to... Like, it's just, it's such a huge advantage running for office when you've already done it before. And I'm having a lot more fun this time around. So uh, that's what I'm working on. If you want to support me, you can do that by going to supportbrianna.com and you can help me win in 2020. Yay. Uh, This week, I'm just continuing to work on my videos for Polygon. Uh, I'm just finally kind of calming down after my month of just kind of leaving New York every single weekend, which was too much for me. And I didn't leave last weekend, but I had a new roommate move in. So that was uh, its own uh, large effort. Um, I'm I'm not, I'm honestly not doing anything exciting this week. And I am super happy about it. Why did I say the F-bomb? No, you guys. Uh, I have to put a timestamp in now. I expect better from you, Simone. I know. Oh my god, I've disgraced myself. Thank God Rebecca Jarvis isn't here anymore. <laughs> I'll never get on network news now. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I tried to imagine you on like Nightline as a serious interview <laughs> 10 years from now. I think I would I would pull it off, but you just see the weirdness bubbling underneath my skin the entire time. You'd be like, she's gonna lose it. She she's going off. How can she keep it together? It'd be like Venom. It'd be like the film <laughs> Venom starring Tom Hardy as Venom. You realize now this is your inevitable career trajectory. Like you're only like half a step from like being Judy Woodruff doing PBS in like 30 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to be the next Barbara Walters. I'm going to really work on that impression. Okay. okay cool. If you liked this episode of Rocket, you should find us online. Where can you do that? You can find me on Twitter and at YouTube, um, youtube.com slash polygon and on Twitter at Doom Quasar. What about you, Christina? You can find me at film underscore girls on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And you can find the videos that I do at work. They've been a little bit delayed because of all the travel at uh, youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. All right. And Brianna? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brianna Wu. You can find me on Facebook at Brianna developer, Brianna Wu. And you can support me by going to supportbrianna.com. All right. And if you like this podcast, please do review us on Apple Podcasts. It's very cool to do that and help people find the show and listen to it and enjoy it. And if you tell your friends about it, that is as good as reviewing it, but you should also review it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this this episode of Rocket. This episode is terminated. 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 Terminated.